Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest hails from Denver, Colorado. He's a yoga teacher, activist, filmmaker, and entrepreneur. After learning about the benefits of yoga through self-practice, he's been giving back to communities all over, teaching yoga in order to promote self-growth and social change. Through his nonprofit company, I'm Unique, he has held yoga classes in non-traditional spaces like Walmart, the Denver Art Museum, the Denver Zoo, Mile High Stadium, and various restaurants for free. I'm Unique aims to unite the community and create a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. It also conducts programs like Breaking Bread, Breaking Barriers that gathers people from all backgrounds together for a meal while discussing critical issues with one another for the first time, regardless of their viewpoints. In 2016, he was awarded the Yoga Journal's National Karma Award. Denver Yoga Festival's Hero Award, and the Colorado Black Health Collaborative Walking The Talk Award. Let's welcome today, Mr. Tyrone Beverly to the program. Mr. Beverly, welcome to the program, man. Thanks for coming through. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yes, sir. The honor is all ours, man. Um, definitely appreciate you coming on. Um, but um, I feel like for us, uh, things like yoga is something that we think probably last of when we think about like fitness and things like that people think about like working out strength training weightlifting weights and things like that um but yoga i feel like is still kind of unknown in our communities and a lot of people like you are making like the effort to definitely spread the word and the message of the power of yoga um so before we get started can you briefly give us maybe some yoga one-on-one and tell us exactly what yoga is where it came from and kind of the ways that you incorporated. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a deep question. Actually, when we talk about the roots of what it is and where it comes from, it's very subjective to interpretation. Just like everything else, everyone has their own opinions and their own uh, historical references on uh, where it did come from and where it derived from, and and who it's for, and and, and who created it. Uh, you may hear it was it was based out in India, but you also may hear that it came out of ancient Egypt. And there's a lot of African roots that are associated with the practice as well. The word yoga itself you may find in, in India, but the overall principles and practices is a universal application that humans can um, contribute this to their own lives, their own lived experience by just being able to have these arms and these legs and this, these, this ability to breathe. Those things are pretty universal, but then you have a system that's being created from across the world and um Historically, people will say, oh, it's coming out of India, but you may hear some people like one of my teachers, Yasir Rahul-Hotep, who, who has been practicing the ancient Egyptian practices, the comedic practices for many years and being able to archive some of the information that's been lost over time. And the principles are really just being in harmony with your environment, being in harmony with yourself and learning how to control the systems of the body to be able to regulate and navigate through your own existence. And just to sum it up briefly, not to go in depth a little bit more, but that's pretty much what it is to me. That's my interpretation that it's 
It's it's a system to be able to govern your own systems and and live in a more harmonious state. I did listen to one of your interviews and you um, talked about um, the practice of Ma'at. And I'm guessing that you probably got that from your from your teacher as well. So how have you been able to incorporate, you know, Ma'at and those practices into your teaching? Yeah, long before uh, I even got in, in into a yoga practice, I was interested in ancient Egypt. I was interested in learning this wisdom that's been around for quite some time. And in high school, I used to bring in my own books and I would ask questions and get kicked out of class for that. Just wanting to know information and knowledge. And when we talked about African-American history, we would go to slavery and stop. And I'm like, why are we stopping here when there's a lot of information and resources that send otherwise? And this is before the Internet was what it is today. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Google. We didn't have a lot of the platforms that we had today, but we did have books. And I was bringing these books into the classroom and I was getting kicked out for it. So I've always had an interest in, in some of those ancient principles and practices and wisdom that it seems like it's been lost over time. And one day I was watching um, a late like PBS. Y'all know what the channel was, but it was talking about pyramids and and people tried to recreate the pyramids and they always failed. And with all the technological advances that we have in our society today, they still couldn't duplicate the engineering that it took, you know, thousands of years before. And that was really interesting and captivating to me. Like we have all of this technology, but yet we can't duplicate something like that. And that's where my interest really began to grow in the ancient comedic practices and teachings. It's like they have information that we don't have access to anymore or purposefully we don't have access to the information because there's some gatekeepers to the knowledge. And then I began to pursue more knowledge through the years. And then eventually, um, you know, reading Egyptian yoga by, uh, you know, a variety of different authors and, and then getting acquainted with uh, Yasir Rahotep. So it, it came along. A long, long time before that, but that is some of the history that got me interested is just learning about some of the ancient uh, teachings and wisdoms that we don't have access to anymore. And the reason that I was being kicked out of class for trying to have a conversation about knowledge and about history. And, you know, I, I was told that oh, this isn't a part of the curriculum, so this can't be a part of the conversation. And that really taught me that there's a method for them to teach us certain things so we become certain people. And I know that we have to do self-study if we want to grow in different areas in different ways because the powers that be want us to, um, you know, be stuck and grounded and not allowing us to grow to a, to really achieve our highest potential. Well said, well said. Um, thank you for sharing that, man. Um, I think that is very accurate. Um, so part of what you do is kind of really reversing that um, and bringing things back into the self and learning and mastering yourself and things like that. Can you get into like the different styles of yoga that you teach? I know asana is one of them, right? So for those that just are not familiar with the practice of yoga, can you explain asana and maybe some of the different styles you like to incorporate? So when you go into it, I think one thing that's important to talk about is what you just brought up is the asana. And that begins to distinguish itself from the overall yoga practice. Yoga in itself has eight different limbs created by Patanjali. And you have like the yamas and the niyamas. And this is the way that you show up in the world. This is the way that you show up for yourself. And then you get into the physical application, which people are familiar with. It's called the asana. And in that you have um, different variations of the, the practice. You'll have a vinyasa. You'll have 
like I said, a comedic practice. You'll have you'll have a variety of different teachings, and then you begin to implement. But most people are familiar with the asana. They're not familiar with the, the yamas and the niyamas. And again, that's how you show up in the world. And that's how you begin to take on this practice long before you get into the physical application. And you also have something called the pranayama. And this is the controlling of the breath. And when we talk about controlling of the breath and being in an environment that may be violent, being in an environment in yourself that may be violent and learning how to regulate your nervous system. You do that with the power of breathing and learning different breathing techniques to be able to to navigate through your own body. And that's a that's a practice that I that I always think is really important for people to know. You might be stressed out. We, you know, we're, we're dealing with a pandemic. A lot of people uh, found it difficult to sleep. And with different pranayama practices, it can aid you in getting a more uh, refreshing and a restorative sleep, teaching you how to breathe in deep and how to regulate your nervous system so you can go into uh, a more calming, uh, rejuvenating sleep as well as learning how to rest and learning how to release the tension just by breathing. Most of the time we're holding on to tension in our shoulders, but when you learn how to breathe, your shoulders begin to soften, your face begins to relax, and your body responds just to the power of the breath. So these are some of the practices that we can implement into our lives daily to be able to increase our overall well-being, oxygenate our muscles, oxygenate the body, and it allows you to develop a, your, your brain in a different way as well because, you know, we know when you hold your breath, you begin to kill brain cells. You go in the water, hold your breath for a long period of time. That's just the power of breathing. So sometimes, I, you know, I like to talk about how long can you go without, how long can you go without eating? The majority of people say, oh, about three days or so, how long can you go without drinking water? And then you'll hear a similar answer. And then the last question is, how long can you go without breathing? And the majority of people say, well, maybe about 30 seconds. So then that teaches us the power of the breath. Like without the breath, there is no life. So we must learn how to breathe fluently. We must learn how to control the patterns of our breath because it's voluntary and it's involuntary. And you can contribute to your overall well-being just by the way that you breathe. And those are the things that we've forgotten along the way. So being able to reintroduce people on this is what your breath does to your body. Let's go ahead and get acclimated and let's go ahead and implement the information that we've learned so you can increase your overall lived experience. Yeah, that is uh, that's extremely powerful, man. Just the power of the breath. Um, another thing I've, I've heard you mention, like in a previous interview, is how we view fitness, because many people look at yoga as a form of fitness and you have, you know, hot yoga and things to burn calories and things like that, and not really the spiritual, mental component of it. Um, and I heard you like just really give a profound, I think, definition of what you think fitness and health and wellness is. So can you share that with us, like your thoughts on what actually fitness is supposed to be versus how we usually view it? Um, fitness, again, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, is to create harmony within your body, because oftentimes when our systems are not in harmony with themselves, that means they're at war with themselves. So you have all these systems. You know, we have a system that the government runs, but we also have systems in our body that governs our body. And when our systems, you know, your, your digestive system, your skeletal system, your muscular system, your lymphatic system, when all these systems are not in harmony, you're at war with yourself. And when you create balance and harmony within yourself, then you're at a more 
you're 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 in a more harmonious state and you're not fighting those battles all the time internally. So for me, when you're trying to focus on fitness, you're trying to get in shape. You're trying to shape your body. You're also trying to shape your mind because you have to shape your mind to be able to do any kind of regimen. Every single day you get up, you have to be consistent to you have to have a certain level of discipline, understanding that discipline interrupts distraction. And if you can interrupt those distractions, you can increase your overall fitness. You can increase your overall mental stability and you can align all of those systems that are within you. And once you have the alignment of the systems, you begin to usher in harmony. And harmony is the balance that we all need to be in to be able to live in a more sane state. Oftentimes, when you're not in balance, when you're not in harmony, you're going to be at conflict constantly. And I think fitness, if you want to classify it as that, you know, that's what you're really trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve balance. And ultimately, I think that's the best thing that we can achieve. Yeah, that is uh, that is powerful, man. Um, another thing um, I have heard you mention was that uh, the school system does a lot of damage, um, psychological damage to us that we have to undo. So I kind of want to want you to backtrack with us and. Um, think about like your own childhood and your experiences and some of the work that you had to undo from that um, to to live a more balanced life. So what was your, you know, like childhood experience like dealing with school and some of the things that uh, may have caused some mental damage that you kind of had to, you know, undo and, you know, gain back a sense of self? Um. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh that's another deep question. Growing up, I I view school. Um, I had these these chapters of school in my life where I love school. I don't want to convey that I don't like school. I love the idea of learning. I love the idea of growing your knowledge, growing your wisdom, and implementing that knowledge into the real world. And when you have certain teachers who don't care for the children, which I've been in those environments, it makes school um, a very violent place because they're attacking your mind and they're attacking your dreams and your ambition and your aspirations to live. And I've had teachers where, you know, I, I express what I wanted to be. When I grew up, you know, when you're young, they always ask you, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and I said, I want to be an, I want to be an archaeologist. And one of the teachers that said, nah, you're going to be a warehouse worker. And I was like, wow, you know, and, and through the years, you know, it really hit me hard because when I was in high school, one of my jobs, I started working in warehouses and I started remembering like, hey, that's the seed that she planted in me. And then that's began to be what my future was, what she planned. I never became an archaeologist. I did become a warehouse worker, and that's the seed that she put in me. And we know that seed, the hardest thing to get rid of is an idea well planted. And she planted these ideas. And it's not to knock people who work in warehouses. It's, that's not what I wanted for me. <laughs> I wanted something different. But at the time, I took that on. And I just remember so many different experiences like that coming from teachers, where teachers would say one thing and do one thing and uh, not really support you in your visions and, and kick you out of class or maybe challenging the status quo. And I, I deal with that for years is coming into these environments where the, the teachers didn't, didn't like the way I approached the information or, 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 you know, we had to do certain things a certain way, or it wasn't going to be received. And, you know, those are some of the challenges I had with, with the teachers being, being kicked out of class constantly. 
uh, not being supported in certain ways and being able to start developing your own interests and, and doing that self-study and self-education. And I appreciate it because I like who I became after that. When I didn't have the resources and I didn't have those supporting systems from teachers, I began to develop um, my own methods to begin to digest information and implement it into my life. And then it wasn't just teachers. It was really a culture. And sometimes we can say, oh, the teacher was bad, the teacher was bad, the teacher was this and that. But it was really culture because a lot of the students like, man, he's kind of weird. He's a little off, you know, just talking about certain things and concepts and principles. You're talking about ancient Egypt or you're talking about the system is against us. Or the system is trying to make us these cookie cutter individuals and we can't think for ourselves. And they want to put us out there into the workforce. And that's all we have. And that's what they want us to be. And in saying that, they, they think you're against the system. It's like, you no, know, we have to challenge the things that we don't see beneficial for us as a whole. And those are some of the things that I, I found myself doing was challenging a lot of things that we were learning. When we learned about history, we learned about a certain, you know, we, we didn't learn history. <laughs> we learned history. We learned information that they wanted us to know. And they kept a lot of information away from us. And then when we bring other contexts into the information, other authors or other scholars that wasn't accepted. So then that, that let me know that this is by design. This is not by accident. And we were being fed information to become certain kind of people. And the school systems were designed on purpose to do just that. And so I think those are one of the things and ways that, that harm us. Because if you don't learn your history, you don't learn who you are. You don't learn history in itself for everybody. This can benefit everyone. So there's not so much confusion. But when you misinterpret information or you start just providing a certain outlook and you're not having a more balanced uh, overview on the information that's being disseminated, you're harming people because you're not wanting them to know certain truths on purpose. And I think that's what school has done to many people to where a lot of students don't like school. They don't feel invested in school. They drop out of school or they don't really bring themselves to school. They show up, but their heart is not in it. They're doing it maybe for somebody that they love, their parents, their cousins, their uncles, their aunties, somebody that they care for. And they're not really doing it because it's something that they enjoy. They're doing it because they feel like they have to. You know, the difference when you go to school and you love to do it, and when you go to school and you just have to do it. And and I felt like the majority of people that I was with at the time, they were doing it because we had to do it. We thought that was the only way to become something in this world. And just being able to go back and forth with certain teachers. But I did have some teachers that were very supportive. So I can't say that there were some teachers in my life that didn't help out. But there was there was times in the school system when I felt like we couldn't, you know, we couldn't learn about different psychologists. We couldn't learn about different methods to self-regulate. And we didn't learn about how to navigate through a system of violence. I grew up in a neighborhood that was really violent. <laughs> I grew up, you know, five years old. That's the first time I heard a gunshot. And that was the first time I seen a dead body at five years old. And I go to school and I learn about certain things and it has nothing to do with the life I was navigating through. It had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with these people on the corner talking about drugs. It had nothing to do with this environment of gangs and, and people just feeling lost and, and, and just doing whatever. And it's, it's bringing so much damage to the, to the neighborhood. They weren't talking about those things. They were talking about things that weren't relevant. And most of the time you hear that from students, like, it's just not relevant to the life I'm living. So it's not really something I want to invest my time into. And 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 that was some of the experiences that I had in school. But I did have some teachers who, who helped and pushed me and said, you know, 
I like the direction you're going in right now. Some people may not see what you're talking about, talking about some of these abstract ideas around what the meaning of life is and what we're here to do on this planet, talking about nature and the environment and all of these things. And like, you know, don't lose that no matter what people have to say. And I appreciated that because that, that planted some really good seeds in me to continue to keep moving in that direction. Yeah, that is uh that is profound, man, because I feel like a lot of our experiences as black folks with school is very similar, you know what I mean, in regards to not seeing it not seeing yourself in school and your environment and what's going on and you're not seeing solutions. You know what I'm saying? Like you mentioned the, the violence that was occurring and um different things that you were l- learning on your own on the outside that you weren't getting on the inside. And I feel like for you that probably led you to a path of of peace and self-mastery. So um, can you walk us through, you know, that path that you followed um, within yourself in order to find peace and healing and how you um, got encountered with yoga and, you know, that, that love story? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a process. It's not just like a one answer thing. It's something that's been cultivating for pretty much my whole life. As I talked about some of the experiences when I was five years old, like escaping that environment, um, I didn't have an escape for that environment. I would look around and that was all I was seeing. That was all I knew. That was pretty much my exposure. But I think one of the things that did help out is the television. <laughs> Ironically enough, it was watching martial arts movies. And when you talk about like self-mastery, that's one thing that all the martial artists used to talk about. Like it's not really about the, the movement, the physical application. It's really about, you know, you sit down and center yourself and being able to control your mind to control your body. And I would begin to duplicate what I would see in those movies. I would do the kicks and the punches and all of that. But then when they would meditate, I would also do that. And I would do it more, like turn the TV off and I'm still doing it. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I like the way it feels. And through the years, I just continued that. And it was always with me, even though I wasn't consciously thinking about it. But it was something I would always do, being out in nature, being around uh, water and just doing certain things that felt really good from what I was learning. And through the years, that was the, that was my, my exposure to a different expression. And I mean expression because like when we talk about the way we show up in the world, we see someone and we implement, we, we, we begin to duplicate or we, we learn from them and we show up in that way. And, and that becomes our expression. Like when you're cussing, you're punching walls, you're doing certain things, you've learned that behavior, and now you express that behavior. So I was learning a different behavior, and I wanted to express that behavior. I can't say that I mastered it, but it was something that was planted in me through the years, and it was something I found interesting. I would see like Bruce Lee and some of the philosophy, and and just a variety of different people in the arts. And over time, I was like, man, I got to really get into this, because I think it can change my life. I think it can create access to something that I don't uh, learn in school. I don't learn in this environment. Nobody's really talking about it. I think it's something that's really special. When we think about the human body and what we can achieve, thinking about mental telepathy, we're thinking about what, what can we really do as human beings? Like, what is that? That's what I was always thinking about. What is our potential? And are we utilizing our greatest potential? And I've always answered no. So um, when I started being interested in that, I was looking for a Bruce Lee, t- a conditioning tape, 
training tape at Blockbuster back in the day when we had VHSs. So it was a long time ago. <laughs> so for all the young folks out here, I don't know if y'all know what VHSs really are, but we had these little cassette VHSs, <laughs> VCR player. And I was like, uh, excuse me, I talked to a lady at Blockbuster. Do you have any uh, Bruce Lee um, like training videos? She was like, mm, no, nah, I don't have anything like that, but I do have this this yoga video and it's on sale. And I was like, what's that? And I've never heard of it at the time. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what this is. I don't know anything about it. She's like, yeah, but it's on sale, so you won't be losing out if you don't like it. So I bought it, and it was like $5. So I was like, all right, cool, not too bad. And then I did it, took it home, started doing it. I was sweating. It was like an hour and a half, and I couldn't finish. <laughs> and I was like, man, this is this is powerful. <laughs> I, I played football and basketball. I played sports growing up. But, man, I was shaking. I was sweating. I pouring sweat just from some other physical application. And then, you know, she had us laying down in Shavasana, and it was, it was, it was powerful. There was something happening to me. So I started practicing every day at that point. I was working at a health club. And when I was working at a health club, I would get breaks. And on my breaks, I would practice. And sometimes people would come up to me like, hey, man, uh, I like what you're doing. You mind if I join you? And I was like, man, I got these tapes at the house. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm like, nah. They're like, man, if you don't mind, I would love <laughs> to join you. I'm like, all right, man, I told you, man, I got these tapes at the house. I'm just, you know, learning from the videos. I was like, all right, well, I want to join you. So then, you know, first person joined. And then, on my breaks, I would continue to keep doing that. More people started showing up. And eventually, you had like a group of people show up. Every time I was on my break, they would show up intensely on my break. And the manager had seen this, and she was like, um, you know, you kind of have a following without having a class. <laughs> you should probably think about getting trained and certified and coming back and we'll give you your first class. And it seems like people are really interested in learning from you. I think you should do that. And I was like, wow. I never really wanted to share this with anyone else. This is something I wanted to do on my own. It's something that I really wanted to cultivate for me. But people were showing up and, you know, she was giving me opportunities and she's like, you know, financially we can pay you more as well. So I did this that I went to WA, my first certification, my first training came back, gave me a class. Class was uh, it was a smaller class and it began to grow. And it and it grew and grew and grew and grew and I started getting invited teaching other places. And it was something I never really pursued. I never really was reaching out to places. Like, hey, can I teach here? Hey, can I teach here? Hey, can I teach there? People were reaching out to me. Like, hey, man, do you want to come teach over here? Can you come teach over here? Can you teach a, a guest class here? And then, you know, the class was, it was full of the capacity at one point. And then everywhere I went, there was people who were interested in practicing. So then I began to to, to cultivate that and, and just create opportunities where people had access and what I mean by that, sometimes people would sneak into the class because they couldn't afford the additional fee. Because at this particular place, you had an additional fee that you had to pay to practice. And I would see that, you know, I see them sneaking in. They don't have their little wristbands on, or, you know, indicating that they paid for the class. And I didn't mind it. Like, come in here. This is what you want. This is what you, this is where you need to be. If you're interested in it, especially if you're interested in it, right? Because sometimes you're trying to, to advertise and get all the people there. But it was people who were interested in pursuing and gaining more knowledge just like I was. And so I would allow them to come in. And eventually, I started creating classes outside of this place where people um, could come for free at no charge. If you're interested, your investment is your time. And, and that's what you'll, that's all you have to pay is your time. And being able to utilize this information and then started changing lives. And people would talk about 
how their lives started changing from this experience. And it was something now I'm really interested in, in sharing with the world because the impact it was making and seeing a lot of the oppressive systems of people who didn't have the financials to experience some of this stuff were being shut out. So what could we do differently to make sure that they have access to be able to create a more uh, well-sound body, well-sound mind? So creating those opportunities then became something I was interested in. And that's kind of how it started. Well, um, kudos to you for doing that, too, man, because I know people would be like, well, if you're building such a large following, you could probably make tons of money charging people for this thing. But you kind of decided to give people the opportunity to experience um, yoga for free, which I think is a very um, powerful thing and concept. And it should be done more, actually, if people are incorporating, like you said, the embodying what yoga is supposed to represent. Um, it's supposed to kind of be for everybody. So, um, you know, kudos to you for kind of figuring that out and incorporating that. Um, part of your journey, too, involved uh, some traveling that you've done to kind of study some other cultures and things like that. And one of the traveling uh, places that you went was China and you studied uh, some Chinese martial arts and just that way of living and lifestyle. So um, what was that experience like you going to China and kind of observing a complete different culture and how have you been able to kind of incorporate that into your practice? Yeah, China was, it was quite the experience. And it was uh, Wudong, China. So it was a place where Kung Fu and, and martial arts, uh, Qigong, um, it was, it was lit. Like it wasn't just, just a class you go to or something that people were doing constantly. Like they were training eight, uh, six days a week, take one day off for eight hours a day. And they were learning about their bodies. They were learning language. They were learning how to heal the body. They were learning different forms. And I can't say I've seen that kind of discipline in the States. I've never been in an environment where people are doing that kind of immersion into the practice. And it's not just like, oh, you did this for for this amount of hours, this is what you do for years, every single day, six days a week. And it's just some really intense training, but you see the benefits showing up in, in, in the people who are taking on this lifestyle. And I've never seen anything quite like that. And then in Wudong, so if you've seen the movie Karate Kid with Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan, that's Wudong Mountain. So you see all of these folks meditating on the Rocks Purple Mountain Monkey Valley and all these different places. And this is you know, this wasn't just for the movies. This is something that you see happening every day. So you show up there, you'll see people literally practicing just like you've seen in the movie. And and that was uh, quite the experience because it was embedded into the culture. It wasn't just like a class that you go to. Whereas what you see here is, you know, you have studios and you're just showing up to take on this hour-long class. So you're going to a teacher training and you're doing it for however many hours, and then you go home. But for them, they were like living it. And sometimes you would just see groups of people practicing Tai Chi, and nobody's leading it. They're just doing it as a collective. And I think those are some of the principles that we can all learn from, is just to like do some of these things. Like yoga, you talk about giving it away for free. Yoga is really, it's free. It's the instruction that costs. Because you can practice at your home for no no fee, only your time, it's your investment. And I think through the years, we started thinking like, okay, there's this association, but you can't get this unless you have money access. You could get it, but you you have to just apply it. 
And what I seen in China was people just applying this knowledge constantly. They didn't have to pay for it. You just show up. Sometimes it's in the park. Everyone's just moving together, just doing different forms. There's no leader. This is just a particular form that they're doing together. And I think those are some of the things that can be implemented in neighborhoods across across the across you know the country, and that can be very beneficial in terms of like health and wellness. When we go into our communities, you know, we got high blood pressure, diabetes, all of these different issues that we're fighting against. And being able to create a culture of health is is something I think that we need because if it's always predicated on money, then that means that program can go away when the money goes away. But if it's embedded into the culture, it's true sustainability because now people have taken on the attributes from what would be classified as a program and now it becomes a lifestyle to where you don't need money to be able to do it. It just happens naturally. And I think that's what um, that's what it really means to be sustainable. It's to where you don't have to have funding to sustain the principles and the practice because you're doing it, you're living it. It's like breathing. Yeah, that but that's some of the things that I seen that that was that was that was extremely powerful. Mm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, man. Um, but you know, as as you know, like Western society is completely different. Um, so what do you say to folks that are like listening in and they're like, well, this sounds great, yoga is great, you know, fitness like wellness is a great thing. However, I have a family. I have to work this nine to five. When I get home, I'm tired. Um, you know, I got to take care of my kids and all this, you know, make money and do all this. And I don't have time to invest in something like yoga or self-practice and things of that sort. So how do I incorporate something that I don't have time for due to the nature of living in Western society? That's a really good question. <laughs> That's a that's a real question. That's something that we have to to deal with, and we have to uh, deal with it face to face boldly. I think one of the best things that we can learn something that I always say now is uh, we have to learn how to add and subtract. So it's really mm-hmm. not about yoga. Earlier, I talked about yoga being um, you know this balance and these systems, and we have to get into our schedule and make it a lifestyle. So if you do have a family, if you do have things that you have to get done, you can breathe still, right? And that's a part of the practice. You can do different breathing techniques to, to make your body feel a lot better. And you have to learn how to add and subtract. And what I mean by adding subtract is you have to add things that heal you and subtract the things that don't. And sometimes it's the television. It's some things that, you know, taking your attention away from cultivating a better you. And sometimes you're doing things that aren't really adding value to your being. They're taken away from it. So we have to learn how to add and subtract, build our schedule, and create a schedule that's more conducive to our overall health. And that's easier said than done, I know, because we all have schedules. We all have things that we have to get done. And we have to you know, follow those rules and regulations. You've got to be here at this particular time. But sometimes you can you can think yourself out of that and say, you know, I'm going to create this schedule. I'm going to make myself happy. I'm going to think about different ways to be able to own my own time. And that's hard, right? Because somebody else is going to pay your checks. Somebody else is telling you when to show up and when not to show up. But if you take on the principles of like, this is where I want my life to go. Like I talked about earlier, you know, having a, um, a teacher tell me what she told me. And that was something that I began to believe. And then I began to make those shifts. Like, this is not what I want for my life. And I made those shifts. So I've been there as well, being in positions and places I didn't want to be. 
And I'm not saying it was an easy transition, but I had to make a variety of different decisions in my life to be able to go a different direction. I think we all have to do that. We have to have this this heart to heart with ourselves and say, what is it that you want to do in this life while you're here? Because, you know, one thing that we don't have is time forever. We, we're going to be here for a particular time and then we're no longer here. And we have to be honest with ourselves about that. And if we leave the body, is this how you want to leave the body? Is this what you're okay with? And once you have that internal conversation with yourself, you say, no, I'm not okay with this. So what is it that you need to do to make those shifts for you and your family? And 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 those and I don't like to speak on things I haven't done personally. I was in these situations and these are the internal conversations I was having. And then I began to make those shifts. And then I started thinking about adding and subtracting. I'm going to implement things that heal me that improve my situation. I'm going to take away the things that don't. And sometimes that's people. You got to let certain people go because they don't have your best interests. You have to let go of devices because they don't have your best interests. There's devices that are strategically created to keep your attention. Why? Because attention is valuable. And if you can gain a person's attention, (laughs) then you can make money and profit off of them. So you want to make sure that you always have their attention. And that's what those devices are created to do. So we have to be understand the psychology that's behind a lot of the things that we're consuming and begin to consume wellness, consume health and subtract the things that don't bring us wellness. So I think that's the best thing a person can do. I mean, in the practice, you know, we talk about the three main causes of disease, not solely all the causes, but the three main causes of disease. The first one being Crimes against wisdom. What does that mean? So if a person is is smoking, you know, and they know smoking is not good for you. However, they're smoking these cigarettes, they know it's not good for you. They consume, 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 consume. You've committed a crime against yourself. You're in a relationship that you know does not serve you. You've committed a crime against yourself because that person doesn't have your best interests. They're harming you, hurting you. You commit a crime against yourself. You're consuming things that you know don't make you feel good. You know it's making you feel bad inside. And you do it anyway. You override the innate intelligence in your body. You commit a crime against yourself. And then the next one is the abuse of the senses. So now we're consuming things because of the taste, because of the way it feels, these sensations. And we abuse ourselves. And we abuse our senses. And then the last one being the effects of time. And when we abuse our senses for so long, it begins to have this long-term impact on us. And that's the three main causes of disease, dis-ease. And when we think about our lives, like what can we do to, to reduce crimes against wisdom? It's not saying that you're going to get rid of all the crimes that you commit against yourself. But what can you do to reduce it? What is it that's in my life that doesn't serve me? And what am I abusing? What am I over-consuming that I know over time is going to harm me? What am I doing to myself? Not to what someone else is doing to me, because it's easy to point the fingers at broken systems or systems that are designed for us to show up a certain way. But one thing about ancient Egypt, when we go into what people classify as the Sphinx, you know, you go into the, the, the name Haru Imhotep, and what you see in that image is, is the head of a, a human in the body of an animal, right? But that animal is being tamed because of what's going on in the mind. And as a saying, it says, as above, so below. And what goes on above happens below. So you have to tame the animal body with the human mind. 
And when you can do that, then your experience is going to be a lot different because you've tamed the animal, which we all have. We have these animal attributes. Sometimes we need that for survival. But if we're constantly acting like the animal, it's going to harm us in the long run. So we have to learn how to tame the animal within us. And that goes to different principles and applications that we can apply. And we think about the crimes that we commit against ourselves. And as we reduce that, we begin to tame the animal body with what's going on in our minds as above, so below. Hope that answered your question. <laughs> that is so powerful, man. Um, just just uh, the, the, the negating and the positives and then thinking about, you know, removing some of the behaviors that, that appeal to our senses. Um, and I think a lot of our behaviors don't involve deep thought. So what you just said incorporates a lot of deep thought and thinking about how we function, why we're doing certain things, and, you know, are we committing crimes against ourselves? And I think that's a really great way of looking at, you know, the way we do things. Because sometimes we, we like to give power and control, like you said, to society or to, um, you know, different components or aspects especially as black folks, and we don't take the power back and think about how we can have self-control and things of that sort. So I think that's diving back into like self-control, that self-mastery, and taking power back. With all that said, though, um, you know, I think that you're trying to embody uh, something that our society should be and how we should be functioning. But at the same time, you know, as a black man, you're still living in a society in which... Um, it's not the way in which, you know, you would like it to be. So I would just ask, like, what has been your experience in a predominantly white space as yoga, um, both practicing and teaching? And, um, you know, how, how have you been able to use those experiences, um, I guess, for for something positive and not make it, not being the angry black man and things of that sort as a result of your experiences? Sheesh. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had experience early on in my career, man. I had a, I had a big afro, right? A lot of different ways now. And I would always rock the afro everywhere I went, teaching classes. And one day a lady came up to me. She was like, Excuse me, sir. Are you, excuse me, are you the teacher? And I said, Yes, ma'am, I am. She looked me up and down and she walked out. And this is earlier on in my career. <laughs> And I was just like, eh. she just walked out on me, right? And so, you know, he started making all these assumptions. He started thinking about why she did, what happened, what's going on. And then I talked to class and did my thing. And eventually, this is one of the powerful things that happened. She came back and she explained to me, she, you know, time passed. This wasn't the same day, weeks on end. She came back and she apologized. And she's like, you know, I grew up in a very racist family. I've never seen anyone in your position of authority, you know, teaching this class, leading yoga classes, anybody that looks like you. And I was struggling internally to take class from you because of it. <laughs> Whoa. And she really just opened up to me. And she's like, but I'm here because I want to change. You know, this isn't, I've been hearing great things about your class. I heard what you represent and I apologize. And then she started practicing and then she started coming uh, pretty consistent. And that was something that, you know, I think it planted seeds in me to say these are the conversations that we have to start having. So we started having certain conversations and start, you know, years down the line, we start calling them breaking bread and breaking barriers. 
having conversations with people who we may disagree with and and see where we can come to a common understanding of what the issues are and what can we do to improve our overall environment that we're living in. Sometimes that means we're having conversations about immigration, we're having conversations about police brutality, law enforcement, you know, the way that they're policing these environments, what can be done differently. And just having the conversations around a variety of different issues. And most of the time we bring these people together, they don't agree, they don't see eye to eye. And they really don't even want to be with each other. But they're open to the conversation. We're having an asana practice first. And then we're engaging um, in a conversation with the meal. So we would get different restaurants to be able to provide food for free because they love the concepts and the ideas. And we have conversations around these issues that people were interested in because we all had to navigate and live through it. I've been profiled. I've been, you know, I had so many different experiences. Don't know who the cars, you know, handcuffed them, done wrong on, you know, numerous occasions. Yet I'm still open to having these conversations so no one else has to do it. But I know that, you know, that was a, that was a lofty feat and that was something that, you know, I was interested in pursuing, but I know there's a system, there's a machine behind it. So it wasn't always the easiest thing. But those are some of the experiences I had to go through trying to navigate through this. And then going into different yoga studios, people not knowing I was the instructor. They're like, hey, are you lost? <laughs> Do you belong here? And then we always talk about like this sense of belonging. Like, hey, I don't belong here. Yeah, I'm the teacher. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What are you sorry for? Oh, that means you knew what you were doing. You know, so, so you know, eventually I stopped teaching in studios because of it. So you ask that question, like, it's, it's near and dear to me because I got out of it because I thought it wasn't a healthy environment to be in in the first place. Like, you know what, this isn't my kind of jam. I don't like it. I'm going to create my own thing. I'm going to different spaces and places and invite the people who are interested in creating some kind of change because I don't like the systems that, you know, I see in these different yoga studios. I didn't really think it was a, a healing environment. And it was very, a very white environment. Always. So it wasn't really something I was interested in doing. I come as a guest teacher, but then afterwards, I'm like, man, where was the people at? You know, it doesn't even have to be one specific demographic, but like, where are anybody else but the people who are showing up? And, and it was never that. So it's like, okay, let me create something to where the people who are interested in creating real change want to be at and want to show up to so we can create it. And we have to live it. We have to do the work because we all live on this planet and we have to navigate and we have to create things and create access for the people who are being left behind. And and that's that's kind of where we, where we started. And then doing certain classes and then one time it was, it was like all brothers in the class and, and and brothers was just opening up about their experience and about coming to a yoga class and they was all like, man, I think this was for us. This ain't something I wanted to do. This ain't something I thought I was going to be interested in. But after they did it, like it changed my life. And my brother, it did for me too, <laughs> you know. And then, and then having those experiences and, and going to different places where people, you know, who might have got in a little trouble. So I should teach it uh, places of probation and uh, like boys' homes and just giving them this information. And like, man, I wish I learned this a lot earlier on in life because it would have helped me navigate it. And, you know, thank you for teaching me this now. And hopefully I can continue to practice this practice and change my life. And those are some of the things that I say, you turn all that into a positive. I'm going into different places and spaces and, and having my own lived experience and just sharing that lived experience. And then people are having theirs and they're like, wow, I didn't know that this was even for us. 
I don't even know this is something that we can do, and I'm actually feeling better. I've only been doing it a month long, brother, and I'm doing I'm doing so much better. My relationships are going better. My body's feeling better. I'm sleeping better. I'm even starting to eat better. Like, man, I wish I knew this earlier on. And those are some of the things that I look to, I look forward to when I hear stories like that, because I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about: is being able to to house certain information and be able to disseminate it to people who can benefit from it. Yeah, I think that is so powerful, man. Um, definitely you seeking your own type of way to incorporate yoga because like you mentioned, like a lot of those spaces are not inviting to us and we don't really want to be in spaces like that, especially the practice of yoga is supposed to be a mindful, comfortable thing. And if you feel uncomfortable to begin with, you're usually not going to be a part of that. Um, so you've kind of been kind of everywhere with, with yoga, like Walmart and different restaurants and the zoo and just things of that sort um where like i would just ask like um have you ever had issues with the different people that come into the um the yoga classes and um or do they just come in with a with a state of mind that is going to be peaceful and because you have so many different cultures and different races and different people that are all in one setting and sometimes it's for the first time so have you had any issues or do they just come in at a really in a really peaceful, mindful type of way to to be ready to do that type of work? Yeah, for the most part, um it's been it's been really received pretty well. People come into these spaces and, and, and just the you know, we're we're opening up with the conversation. We're talking about these issues and we're talking about things that we want to create change with. And for the most part, people are like, you know, they get behind. But there are some folks one time, you know, usually you have earlier on, it was predominantly all white people. And then when that started shifting, you started seeing people, you know, looking around and and like, oh, yeah, it's it's different now, isn't it? (laughs) You know, when they start seeing black bodies in the spaces, it was, you could see there was, there was a level of people being uncomfortable. Right now, it's the opposite. It's the flip side. (laughs) So, yeah, and they were, you know, the music is different. And like, oh, but for the majority of the time, you know, it's a space where it's, it's welcoming to people who are interested in showing up, right? But if you don't like different cultures and different people, then, and then you got some music that might sound different from what you're used to, that might turn you off. And there have been some people, uh, not many, but like, oh, this is different. I don't know if you have my jam anymore. And um, those are some of the things that I've heard about, but none like, Super wild, super crazy. The majority of people who show up love it, and and they they party with us. And you know, we turn our class into you know a dance at the end. We just celebrate life because you know, we mentioned like the pandemic, and you know, even before the pandemic, the pandemic was going on different. You know, folks are struggling and going through hardships, and black bodies are being on the news, and we're watching them be assassinated before our eyes, long before the, you know. The pandemic that people are talking about now, <laughs> you know, we got a man who just pulled over and he shot live on TV, uh, on on screen where all of us can witness it and see it. what kind of trauma does that create. And and that's been going on for years. We got to continue to keep seeing this over and over and over and over and over again. So anytime that we have an opportunity to celebrate life, like we do just that, we try our best to celebrate the small victories, celebrate ourselves. And create environments where we're like, yo, we're not here to harm nobody. We're just here to, to create some kind of healing, some kind of peace, some kind of joy, some kind of joy that you can hold on to and it's tangible. 
It's not something that's you know just made up. It's something that like they're here, and we gotta make something that's important and valuable for us. And if you into that, then let's do it together. And if you're not, then we'll see you when we're done, or we won't see you ever again anyway. So you know if you're here to do this work, that's what we're here for too. So let's do this that. So um, that's really like the foundation. We talked about the mission earlier to create a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. Individual growth doesn't happen unless you're being challenged. Like sometimes your ideas may be challenged when you're growing. And most of the time, that's how people grow because they had been challenged in certain ways. And now they're required to change. And then that's where um, growth is is born. So um, we open to all of that. A lot of these hard conversations, a lot of these hard situations, sometimes when we have having conversations, like with law enforcement, that's horrible, extremely hard. You know, a lot of people who show up to that, they got, they got cases, they still fighting. They got, you know, experiences where they getting pulled out of cars, being beat. They got, you know, I got experiences. And then they're sitting there having a conversation like, man, how can we do better? It's like, how can you do better? Like, how can y'all quit treating us like this? You know? But then we got to, you know, sometimes there's certain things that and just being really honest and transparent about all of it. Like, okay, what is it that we're doing wrong? What is it, you know, just, just having those open conversations. And and that's hard. I'm not going to sit here and say that's easy. That's been hard. Even even creating the event itself is challenging. Right? Like, I'm going up talking to these folks. Like, hey, I'm going to have a conversation with the rest of the community. But I'm not saying the officers aren't a part of the community. Because they're part of the community too, they're, they're police the community, right? But um, they're not looked upon as such. It's like they're above the community. And then, then in those conversations, one time I was asking the officers, like, "Hey, you know, tell me about the program we're going to be doing." And when I'm looked at, it's like, "Yeah, man, we could uh, we could bring our dogs and our squat team, SWAT team, and we can show you how we get in and apprehend the criminal, and we can show the dog, like, we got kids and family." Right? Like just the sickness, that thought that that you know that's what he wanted to to have at this experience. And I don't know if he was like creating a little tension, or you know he was being see like you know I didn't know what his intention was behind it, or is he really in his mind thinking that's going to be beneficial and beneficial for the people? Like I didn't know his intention behind it. I can make assumptions, but like that was a very you know undesirable experience. It was one that and how many hymns are out there in the world <laughs> you know and and that was something that was it just is it, it, it makes you not want to do it like because it feels dangerous every time like, you just never know how it's going to go you your intention is to create uh, a peaceful environment where people are getting along and, and unified and, and building a stronger community a safer community and not being harmed and just in the mere conversation of that you know the damage is being done Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing to, to even be bringing people together that, you know, can be, um, can result in conflict, but sometimes those conversations need to be had. So, uh, on your website, you mentioned, uh, as a collective, we could end poverty, we could end homelessness, we could end disease, uh, that plagues the world, and not one person in history did anything by themselves. So, do you include racism as a part of that? And then, um, you know, what, what exactly does that look like, us ending some of these things as a collective? Is it through those conversations that you have on your program? Does it take more than that in your view? Is it through yoga? 
Yeah. Um, so, so when you utilize a, a yoga practice, I think one thing that we have to talk about in, in one of the, the yamas is something called a himsa. In 1959, um, Dr. King took a pilgrimage to India. And this is where he learned about um, the nonviolence principles that were, you know, a part of the yoga practice, which many people don't know. So he learned that from a person, you know, we all know Gandhi, and he began to take on those principles of ahimsa, of nonviolence, to do no harm. And if we do our history, we know that they're taking down Gandhi statues all across South Africa because of who he was. He was a racist. He was a bigot. He was a person who was doing harm to black people. He was calling them derogatory names. He was treating the black folks in that that area really bad. <laughs> and through the years, he began to make those shifts where he said, now Ahimsa is my two lungs. I can't live without them. You know, he's talking about doing no harm to people. And when we think about Dr. King, he brought those principles back to America and then he began, he began to create a nonviolence movement. So if we start focusing on his tactics and his strategies to be able to create this civil rights movement, he utilized the yoga principle to make that happen, which is called a hemsa. Well, we, inter- we, we, we say nonviolence, but that in, in, in the yamas is called a hemsa, nonviolence to do no harm. And he talked about his relationship as being a Christian. He's like, you know, this was the inspiration, but this himsa is the method that's practical. Like a lot of the religious principles are in theory, but this right here is something that we can truly implement to make some change happen. And if we were able to implement this nonviolence principle in society, that begins to challenge racist systems like not just the individual racism but the systematic racism that must be dealt with now if you have a system that's creating harm then that is not the system that needs to govern the people so if you're redlining and you have you know the jim crows and and now we have a variety of different issues around you know even real estate you go into a place and black couple gets you know quote for three hundred thousand dollars white couple comes in that house is now seven hundred thousand dollars so you have these systems right that <laughs> that are in place that continue to do harm so the yoga approach for it would be to do no harm in these systems that, that are governing the people and if we can do that then we start chipping away but however it's so embedded into the people that they will continue to reintroduce it Right. So that's that's the really challenge because we have to change. We have to we have to challenge our own paradigm. We have to challenge everything that has been in front of us. And we have to <laughs> we have to redesign what the world is today. And that's not something people really want to do. I don't think you can just say, oh, in racism. No, you have to redesign this entire thing if you really want that. Like what is African-American? Right. I was having a conversation uh, you know, through the years and. When I was younger, I met someone from South Africa. She she says she's she classifies as European. She was you know she but she's she's from South Africa. She moved to America, and she was laughing when they was in conversation. She's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, what's going on? She's like, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm African American, and I just got this scholarship. 
because I'm <laughs> from South Africa and now I live in America. And then that's where my Wait, she said she live, just you know, got a scholarship? She got all kind of benefits and scholarships because she classifies as African American. <laughs> so she gets, you mm. know, she gets financial support because of what she's able to write on these documents because she's from South Africa, but now she lives in America. So that means she's African American. And it's like she's reaping the benefits of the people whose blood, sweat, and tears went into making this possible. And yet here she is benefiting from that. So when we talk about this idea, right, it's so entrenched into the culture and there's so many different workarounds with the language that you really don't know what anything is. Like if she's getting any benefits and then everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, and then they're on purpose. Like, oh, you know, Elon Musk, he's, he's South. He's South African. He's African-American. And and that's not just her. It's not just him. It's, it's all of these people who identify in a similar way and still benefit <laughs> from the people who has lost their lives for this, right? So when we talk about racism, it's, it's so embedded into the system that we would have to recreate the system if we're really talking about creating some real change. And I don't know if people are really ready for that or know what that means. But it's it's fun to say. But the application of it is entirely different from what I think people are leaning towards. It would it would challenge everything that we know to be true and real, and we would have to to recreate everything that we know. Agreed, agreed. Uh, definitely. Um, you know, it's it's a lot. It's easy to talk about. I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, we need to do this and do that, and you know, racism will be eliminated, but. It takes getting people to buy in, especially the people like you mentioned that are benefiting from the system. Like, why would they buy in to something that wouldn't give them as many benefits and things of that sort? So it is extremely challenging, man. But I think uh, a good approach is what you're doing, too, is just, um, you know, incorporating what you want the world to be like within yourself and within your space. And I think that that is a powerful way to go about a system that's designed to damage us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and then regaining that control back and giving it back out into the world. So definitely kudos for you for doing that um, and dealing with it in that sense. You know, um, I wanted to get into a quick little activity here before we close out called What's Your Favorite? Identifying a few of your favorite things. Um, you can elaborate it if you want. You can keep it short and simple. Um, so, uh, what is your, I know you probably get access a lot. What is your favorite yoga pose? Uh, yeah, I don't have a favorite anything. You don't have a favorite anything? Anything. Yeah. I don't even, uh, subscribe to the idea. What, 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 you know, it's like, if you say this is my favorite, what would you say to somebody? Like when, like, oh, this is my favorite destination. Mm -hmm. Like it's your favorite destination because that's all you've been exposed to. Right, the things that we classify as our favorite is our exposure. So it really can dictate our limitations, and our limitations mm. become what we classify as our favorite. Like, it's your favorite because you never had this. This is your favorite because you've never been here. This is your favorite because you never had this kind of exposure, this kind of experience. So that's just the way I interpret the the concept, right? And I think in society, people have this idea and this notion that, okay, these are my favorite people. And systematically, that could be cool. But when you govern a system that governs everybody as a whole, you know, you can play favoritism, right? 
So now you can dictate who benefits and who doesn't. So the ideas that are associated with favorite, it, it, I don't subscribe to it. I cancel all my subscriptions, you know, at a really young age, just thinking about Because people are like, oh, what's your favorite color? What's this? And then you will say, okay, you gravitate towards that color every time. But then for me, it created some kind of limitation. Okay, why is it that you gravitate towards this every time? And then it creates this this notion that this is what you have to do. This is the expectation that you sell for yourself because you classified it as your favorite. And now this is the expectation that everybody else has for you as well because you told them this is your favorite. And then that can change, but over time. So for me, it's like at this moment, this is what I will get engaged in. Or, you know, you talked about a yoga pose. Like my body is like the seasons. Sometimes when it's cold outside, I got to put on a coat. So this is what I need right now. Sometimes it's too hot, so I got to strip these layers off. So I got to be in harmony with my environment. So the poses work that way in my body. If I've been sitting too long, I need this pose right now. This is the most important thing I could be doing. I can't say that that pose that I classify as my favorite is what I need because that's not going to serve its purpose for me. So I have to utilize something that's going to benefit me in the moment. So that's what I think about being present in the moment. It's like it's not about what's your favorite. It's about what's necessary for right now. And in the present moment, this is what I need right now. And then that's how, in my mind, I could stay present to what's going on as opposed to saying, this is my favorite. And then that becomes this pattern, this repetitious pattern that sometimes could slow down my growth because I've classified this as the hierarchy within my life structure. And that might be, you know, a bit much. And I told you, like, in school, these are the things I used to talk about. And just this whole notion of, oh, what's your favorite car? I maybe I've never seen it before. Like, my exposure, oh, I see in this kind of car. And that's my, like, you know, I don't, I, I can't subscribe to that because then it creates barriers for me. Then it boxes me in, like, this is this. You know? So it's really like, you know, this is where I'm at in this moment. And, and this is what's speaking to me right now due to my limited amount of exposure. But, you know, that's just my take on the whole idea. So hope that didn't mess nothing up, but that's just the way that I see the world. That is the, definitely something to, to think about, man. Um, so we're going to just scratch off the, all the all the favorite lists that I had. <laughs> um, well said, though. Um, I think that's definitely worthy uh, of thought, limiting your mind to just one thing as opposed to time and place in the moment. And um, that kind of matches the, the philosophy of yoga as well. Um, for those kind of wondering about the work that you do with I'm Unique, your nonprofit agency, um, can you elaborate? I know we talked about uh, breaking bread and a few other things that you do, but uh, what is it exactly uh, I'm Unique? What is it designed for? And what are some of the things that you've been able to do and incorporate as a result of the program? Yeah, um, really the mission is, is the focus to create a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. So in there, you don't hear, oh, to come practice yoga, to do asana in these places. It's really creating culture. And what that looks like for us is, you know, identifying, we did a study years ago around people's uh, behavior and and what that looks like. Okay, why does it, like we did this, we, we asked several questions around, what is a person, what do you eat when you go to the movies? And 90% of people are like, popcorn, nachos. What do you eat when you go to a baseball game? Peanuts and hot. You know, it's the culture that influences behavior. 
So we focus on culture building and being able to implement different things within the culture to create those shifts. So to create a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. So the culture teaches you, and then you begin to grow as an individual. And then in turn, the whole society begins to, to change as a whole as well. So that's kind of like the work that we're doing, create a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. And going into different environments where we change the, the culture of that environment. So it may be for a company who's who's struggling with some of the things that you talked about, you know, racist principles and oppressive tactics and not allowing people to have a voice around the issues that are taking place within that establishment. We come in and have a breaking bread and everybody can speak the truth. So now the culture of that environment is being challenged before everyone's eyes. So no one's behind the scenes talking. They're talking right in front of the CEOs and the heads to hear this message. And we're all having this conversation. Now people know that these are the shifts that need to take place in this particular location. And we take that conversation into a variety of different places and spaces and get people voice to talk about the issues they're concerned with. We do it with a lot of youth as well. So where the youth will come out and be like, yeah, the teachers are doing this. Teachers are doing this and this and And then we also give voice to the teachers. Say, well, students. These are some of the things that I see. These are some of the things I see from your parents. The parents are in there as well. They're having a conversation. And, you know, it's not like we've seen something like this to where you can have these, these ongoing conversations around the issues where it's an open, transparent conversation. You're having this dialogue between all the uh, parties involved. You got the student, you got the parent, and you got the teacher. And we're talking about the issues. And then you're going into uh, different places where we're talking about immigration, we're talking about racism, we're talking about. Uh, oppressed people. We're talking about, uh, you know, like I said, police brutality, a variety of different issues that people are concerned with and and presenting viable alternatives. We also have conversations around homelessness, but then talk about a viable application. What can we do? So we go into different places. So sometimes out here in Colorado, it's really cold and looking out for some of those who are unhoused. They need, they need something to survive because they're not going to survive some of these brutal winters. So we we're able to get blankets and, and and food, water, and things that can help them, you know, navigate their conditions and situations. So it's not just a conversation. So we're, we're practicing the asana, we're having a conversation, and then we make that conversation practical to where we actually make turn it into a service. So we're going out to the community to try to create some kind of improvement within the community, and those issues vary. So it's sometimes it's, not anything I talked about is something entirely different. It's about teachers. Teachers need support. So we'll build uh, wellness packages for teachers and say these are some of the things that you can have. Mother's Day, Father's Day, we, we're giving out like massages and spa days and just giving uh, mothers a chance to get away. They got hotel rooms. Uh, you know, they get away for the whole weekend and just get a chance to, to cultivate and, and talk about some of the things that they need in their lives. And then we have like a student called a uh, program called Picture This, where we get students um, to answer certain certain questions around what it is you need to thrive and to become better. And we'll look at all of the things that they list, and then we'll surprise them with everything that they listed. Like we want you to do better. So Picture This is around like utilize your imagination to take you to the next level. A lot of students don't have the opportunity to to imagine possibility, and sometimes they just need that support. So teaching them how to dream dreams up and have no limitations on those dreams. 
So sometimes they're like, oh, I need a computer. Oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. I need this. I need this artboard. I need, I need that. I need that to get better. And we show up and we go into a place. Um, like one of the most fanciest hotels or places that we can find. We get them um, brought in with like a limousine car service. Doors opening up for them. We're in the, the, the suites, uh, the presidential suites. And they get there. And, and what gets revealed to them is everything that they dreamed up. And that's the whole concept around picture this, picture your future. Like, what do you want that to be? What does that look like? And then some of them don't dream big. Like, this is what your dream look like now. What can it look like in the future? What can you dream up next? And just trying to teach them, like, this is what you can do. And you never know when opportunities are going to come your way. So be ready for that. So prepare for that mentally. So uh, we do a variety of different things. But again, it's all predicated on culture. Creating a culture of health, individual growth, and social change. When a student has, you know, the opportunity to dream and get supported in that dream, that creates change in the individual. And now the society has changed because of it. That's a more happier person, a more resourced person, and a person who is open to dreaming. A lot of the youth right now that we're talking to aren't open to dreaming, aren't open to trying to be something different, trying to be exposed to new things and new wonders. And those kind of experiences for them, like, you know, you know, they're bawling, crying. Like, I've never been in this place, like, a place like this before. Why did you do this for us? Why are we in the president's suite? I'm from the hood. Nobody ever really cared about me. You got car service. I didn't even want to come. This guy opened up the door. I'm nervous. Nobody opens up doors for me. And then they show up, and then it's presidential suite, and then the parents come, and the parents are crying, saying the same thing. And what is that synonymous of? That's that's very similar to you know these passed down traits, you know, generational trauma, or generational uh, ability to dream. Like if your parents don't dream, you might not dream either. So you know, just trying to really affect it and address it in a different way, and that's really what the name is all about. Is Omni? It's not about Omni. It's about like the organization as itself is like, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to try to approach this in a way that's tangible and it's relatable and it's not just talking about it, but like creating resources and lanes that people can go in to change their life, to change society. I'm not saying that we could change the world, but within the work, we can change certain things within our reach. And, and that's really what it's all about. Kudos to users for thinking of all those creative ways of making an impact and actually doing. I think it's easy to get into talking and philosophy and ideology, but a lot of us struggle with the action steps and it seems that, you know, you're you're doing the action steps and, you know, kudos to you for, for getting these things done. I'm sure it's making a difference in, you know, a lot of people's lives, man. And um, you know, as you do the work more and everything, uh, might start to think about legacy and what it is that you want the work to represent. So when we're looking at 30, 40, 50 years down the line, and we're looking at I'm Unique, we're looking at uh, Tyrone Beverly, like what what do you want the legacy of the work that you've done uh, to embody? Mm. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, uh, you know, um, I think it's just that it's creating a culture of health. I think there's nothing more important than health. Like when we look at the the world we're living in, and, you know, the environment is 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 depleted. Uh, nature is being destroyed constantly. 
racism has plagued us since the inception of this country. And and that takes away from one's health. On all sides, right? <laughs> Everybody's impacted by racism. Because now we have to waste time fighting about it. And we're not living uh, a more sane life. And when we create a culture of health, we're not living in a state of scarcity. We're not living in a state of oppression. We're not living in a state of insanity. Right now, many of us are insane by the conditions that have been created for us to live in. And generation after generation, the next generation inherits that same insanity. So when we create a culture of health, we no longer have to deal with that. When we create individual growth, it means a person allows himself to grow. You know, sometimes you have to be willing to grow. Sometimes you feel like you belong a certain place. And you're not willing to grow. You're not willing to do the work. And when you are, by default, you create a more humane society. And, and as my legacy lives on, I think that that's really what I want people to remember. Like we create a culture of, of growth, of health, of social change. And, and that's 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 it. We have to tell our own stories, right? One thing that that really like pierced me, you know, I grew up thinking about Uncle Tom being a sellout. You know, people always say, "Ah, oh, man, you know, Uncle Tom, you're Uncle Tom." You hear that saying thrown around for so many years, and then one day I just, you know. Started researching, picking up books, and reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Learning about Josiah Henson, who is the inspiration for Uncle Tom. And I bring this up because of legacy. And his legacy was that he was a sellout. That he was against black people, he was against his own people. And when you read it, you realize that he was actually the hero in that narrative. He actually helped two black women escape slavery <laughs> and sacrificed his own life. But then in real life, you have Josiah Henson, who is the inspiration of Uncle Tom, Harriet Beecher Stowe, met him and put him, inserted him in her story as the hero. And he was in Maryland enslaved. And you know, he witnessed his father being brutally beaten when he was a child. He was separated from his family, almost died. He was brought back with his mother. And right before he died, you know, they saved him by love, by putting him back with his mother. And and they began to grow strong. They began to grow into the overseer. And he would give extra rations to the people. And they loved him for it. They trusted him. They loved him so much they would follow him right back into slavery. Crazy. And then, you know, he followed all the rules. He did everything that he was required to do. He was enslaved and he was good to the slave masses. And he followed all the rules. He did everything they told him to do. He made a deal to get his own freedom. 
And they didn't follow the rules. They kept him in there and deceived him. And his whole life, he followed the rules. And he was a person that cared about his people. And eventually, because they didn't follow the rules, neither did he, and he escaped. And he walked all the way to Canada with his family for freedom. Long before Harriet Tubman, long before a lot of the names that we know of today, long before Frederick Douglass. And in his older years, he was preaching and he was talking about leaving his people behind. And in his real life, he walked all the way back to America to get some people the first time they didn't come. So he walked all the way back to Canada and did it again and made several trips to where he freed over 100 plus people. And he did all of his work long before Tulsa, Oklahoma. He built a, a, a sanctuary for the people. He built an environment where it was a settlement for people who were enslaved to have a job, to have lodging, to have a life. And they got a hold of his story and his legacy, and they muddied the story. He became this person globally as a person who was a sellout against his people. So I always say it's important for us to hold on to our stories and to be able to do what you're doing. Disseminate these stories so the legacy doesn't get tarnished. Because for over 100 years, people thought he was a sellout, but he was actually a hero saving the people. And his legacy was destroyed. But even then, you know, when you do something good, you never know what your legacy is going to be. So you have to continue to keep doing the work regardless of what that may be. So for me, it's like, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what, I still have limitations on what it, what it looks like. But I know that, I know that health, like in its, in its broader sense, not just like your blood pressure, not just like, your, your, you know, your health as a, as a way of life, as, as, as a more, like I say, like as a more harmonious state of being, like your being, like your human being in the environment in which you live. Like the trees are healthy, the soil is healthy, the water is healthy, the air is healthy, our bodies are healthy. Like we are living in a more humane state where we're not being polluted by so much toxicity because right now all of them <laughs> Are the latter. They're all polluted. They're all toxic. They're all destructive. They're all tainted. And one of the principles of yoga is a tapas, and this is about heat. You generate heat to get rid of the impurities in the body. So it's really not about the asanas, any kind of form of movement that can create heat to manage the waste within you, because it's really about waste management. Waste management is what you're doing when you're moving your body. You're trying to get the waste out that activates your lymphatic system, which helps support the immune system. And you're trying to get all of that out. And that's why you create heat. So you get earlier, you talked about a brick room class and they have this heat on and you're trying to get the waste out. That's a part of the principle. But you can run, do the same thing. You can do a variety of different movements to get the waste out. Movement is waste management. So we have to also manage socially to get the waste out of our society to live in a more healthy state. So the legacy that I'm aiming towards is to achieve that. And I will be satisfied if that's what's remembered. And that, that was powerful, man. Uh, thank you for that with Uncle Tom as well, because um, you're right, man. When we don't tell our stories, the entire story can be 
in a complete different format and be the complete opposite of what it actually was. And that is done time and time again in history, man. So super important for us to define our own legacy. So definitely thank you for sharing that. And um, again, I appreciate the work that you're doing, man. And um, I think it's very powerful just embodying what you want to see in the world within yourself. I know you mentioned, you know, Gandhi had uh, different um, ideologies of black people that we might not be fond of. But one of the most powerful things um, that he mentioned and he stated was to be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think that is one of the things that stimulates change. Um, holistically and not just telling people this is what you should be doing but embodying it and representing that so people have an understanding of this is what it looks like as well so again kudos for doing that i think you are embodying that and that's definitely something that i'm going to remember um just about the work that you're doing man so appreciate that uh generally to leave off we ask our guests to leave us with their favorite quote. So we're going to like just eliminate that favorite word. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, maybe you could leave us with a quote that is meaningful to you. That means something to you. Matter of fact, also too, I know um, you do something called poetic flow. um, That is just a a list of different um, words and phrases that you you came out with. So maybe instead of a favorite quote, you can share some of your poetic flow with us um, before we leave off. Yeah, to kind of um, educate the viewers on what the poetic flow is. For years, um, I was practicing and it wasn't speaking to me. I was practicing the asana. And like when I was moving, it just wasn't speaking to me. Like, man, this, 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 this asana practice, speaking of yoga, wasn't really, wasn't resonating with me. And then I was just taking the time to to think about what each pose meant and what it meant for me. And I would look at society and I would realize that we began to look at the world around us. And we begin to embody the concepts and the environment that we live in. So if you look at sports teams, you have the Miami Dolphins, you have the Denver Broncos, you have you know, Chicago. Bulls, you have cars, you have the eclipse, you got the spider, you got Saturn, and Kung Fu, you have the praying mantis, you have you know, monkey, tiger, you have all of these things that you begin to embody. And then in yoga, you have, you know, cobra. Interesting, because we, we have that pose a lot. And I, and I wonder if people ever considered, like when they embody that, do they also realize that they embody the poison? And the venom that's in it. So we embody all these things. That's how we design and that's how we define ourselves by these names that we see in our environment. We say that this is who we are. And then it began to like speak to me. And that was the foundation of the poetic flow. Like life is poetry. You can you can kind of take shifts. And some people may say, Oh, you are kind of like a shapeshifter or whatnot. I think in different situations, it requires you to show up a different way. And it's important to know that. Sometimes you may have to wear your suit. Sometimes you got to have, because you speak a certain way. Some people say, oh, that's code switching. And I'm like, you know, if you look at it, one person, a person should not be defined by one form of expression. And 
you should be able to express yourself in many different ways. And I think that's why a lot of people, a lot of black folks don't get into the asana practices because they say that's not for me. It's never been for me. That's not my form of expression. My form of expression is like this. And I have to stay in this lane because this is who I am in this world. And the moment you squash that whole idea, everything begins to shift. So the poetic flow is founded on being able to understand what you embody and when it's necessary to embody. And it begins like this. So the poetry facilitates the movement. So every time I speak and say something, it's a group of us, man, anyone who knows it, they will move with the cues of the poem. So that's how it's facilitated. We are connected to a collective awakening of self-discovery and mastery. You see, movement is medicine. We calculate our movement by our daily regimen. And we stand on the blood and the bones of our ancestors to continue the path towards harmony. You see, we reach for the ascended knowledge above us and we honor the knowledge within. We embody the strength of a mountain. And please make no mistake, we are warriors too. When we reverse our path back to harmony, and we extend ourselves to peace. And we rise like an eagle, like a falcon, Haru, peaceful and free. We experience life between the earth and the sky. We bend and we fold and unfold to reveal our truth. Because it's written from within. And no matter what we go through in life, we will rise and rise again. Giving us so much to think about um, today with with um, our interview, man, and some things to definitely to be mindful of moving forward. Uh, definitely would love to have you back on the program at some point, man. Um, thank you for you know just embodying a lot of gems in us today and uh, sharing your wisdom with us, man. Appreciate you for having me, and uh, thank you for the work that you're doing, brother. I, I, now I want to learn more about what you got going on and see if I can support it in any way. We'd love to because uh, just love what you what you shared earlier, just the things that you're working on and just being an educator and educating your students in this way, just the rest of the world, just bringing people into the platform that can help share information that can improve our condition. So I really honor and value that. I just want to thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. Um, yeah, we'll definitely figure out ways to support one another, man. Um, uh, what, what, where can people find you in regards to people that might want to take a class or uh, want to do something um, or ask questions about your practice and everything? Uh, that's a good question too. Um, <laughs> uh, my my platforms, man. I'm not I'm not as active, um, like social media, not as much. But uh, I mean, I'm unique. Dot o r g. I could be reached there. And there we go. Just reach out there. I got I to gotta give my man, uh, Dr. Sebi, a quote, right? It's not my own. This is Dr. Sebi. I think it's something that the listeners need to hear. It's short. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let's that he said that, um, he said that um, the body wasn't designed to be sick. That's it. The body wasn't designed to be sick. Just remember that. So health is our natural state. Got it, got it, got it. 
All right, uh, listeners, thank you for listening. Um, I hope that you are as informed as I am on yoga, mindfulness, and the benefit, I think, as black folks for us to really start opening our minds to um, these practices. They are not just for white folks. And uh, like Tyrone mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of this came from black and brown people. So it is our culture. It is our um, practices. Um, so we need to re-embody these things and um, think about how to create that change within us. Um, so again, Tyrone, thank you for coming through. Uh, listeners, share the program. Thank you for listening. And of course, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.